This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. Either you're a product company or you're, you're a services company, but you, ca you really can't be both. If you're both, you're always much, much better at one than the other. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Elian, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks a lot, Sylvan. A real pleasure to be here. You're the co-founder and former CEO at Netcentric, a Zurich-based company that develops customer experience marketing solutions. And before we talk about that impressive story, I actually want to start with your school, with your personal background. You had the opportunity to really spend some time on what you were really interested in uh, in school. So how did that shape you that you had a lot of freedom at school to do what you were really interested in? I really, I really think that, that that changed quite a bit on how, how I am as a person. But probably like just to go one step back, sort of what is actually the, sort of the, the difference on that, our different schools, and it's, it's always a big topic. Um, the, I went to a school, it's called Villamonte, it's based in, in Galgren, sort of Lake Zurich. And in comparison to probably pretty much all the schools, at least in Europe, it's probably the most sort of, let's say, free model on what you could imagine. So. Mm -hmm. To explain it sort of in, in, a, in a very simple term, I, I could do the entire day whatever I wanted. So there was, there's no one, there's obviously like, there, there's sort of kind of teachers there, but they primarily are there to help you if you have a question. There's no one who tells you what to do or even encourages you to do something. So I had really to learn sort of to do and decide things, mm -hmm. even like decide like what am I going to do today from a very, very early days on. And I really think that has has shaped my, my, uh, myself a bit and, and certainly also had an impact on, on how I created or also how I run my companies. That sounds almost too good to be true as a kid, you know, when you can do whatever you want it. Like, didn't that also come with some challenges on top of that? Um, obviously, I, I have now that, uh, three children. I was myself and the oldest one is going there to school as well. Um, right. Many of the other parents always have that, that, that big fear sort of, Uh, are they actually going to learn something? Mm -hmm. that's, and I think that's not really sort of a challenge from a kid's perspective, because as a kid, you're just there, you're playing, you have fun, um, you do stuff, you're, we were always a lot outside. Um, I did a lot with computers, obviously, back then, because I was just a lot interested in that. Others don't do anything at all. But mm -hmm. from a parent's perspective, it is super difficult if, if, there's, if the, you don't get grades, for example. So right. how, do you how do you know as a parent, is your child doing well or, right. or not at all? And that is for many, many parents super difficult sort of to overcome and, and, and work with that. And, and just to see the child happy isn't, isn't necessarily enough. So I think the challenge is more from a parent's perspective, which 
I guess now for me, having had that experience myself is relatively easy, but I really can feel with many other, other parents who are there who've never had that before. That's very interesting. So it's a bigger challenge for the parents than it is for the kids, probably. Totally, totally. I think like, sort of from a parent's perspective, you, you, you have to do something that you didn't experience yourself. Yeah. You, ha you, you have to do something and sort of just stand back and sort of trust the system that it works and trust right. your child, especially. that It actually knows what's best for itself and, and what it wants to become or what's, what it wants to do in the future or probably for a long time doesn't know at all. You then actually did an apprenticeship as an application developer due to your interest in computers, obviously. And then also pretty early on, you then also started your first company, your first venture. Where did that entrepreneurial drive come from? Was that linked to your school days or did you also have other inspirations and role models in your family that shaped you? I think, I mean, uh, both my parents were goldsmiths or so they were more, more from a creative um, direction than I am. Um, but it... it, it it all sort of just came together. I always, I was always into doing stuff. So already at school, I always helped and sort of, I earned my money into it with helping people sort of fix their computers and all <laughs> those things. Um, then I started the apprenticeship where I had, uh, I would say the, the luck to be in a company where I could do many things also very, very independently myself. So it was, it was actually a super lucky constellation that just sort of after having a very free and open school, mm -hmm. I came to a company where I really could develop what I was good at very early on. And I had, I think also I was, I was super productive and I guess I delivered a lot of, of value for the company, yeah. but it was also for, for myself, it was the best environment to learn. And I was just in there, let's, okay, let's do stuff. Yeah. Let's let's just go on. So that was that was was a super interesting time, and then I think it was in the in the third year of the apprenticeship. So I was 18. So there were uh, two friends of mine who were based in Basel. They really wanted to start a company, mm -hmm. um, and, and it was just sort of working besides besides sort of the normal apprenticeship. And I did it primarily at night and on the weekends. But at the end, we had like four employees. It was like the typical thing that everyone did at that time. Sort of, we had on one side a hosting business, mm -hmm. which was uh, like like way before all the cloud uh, storages came up. A super interesting business, right. but also the, the web design thing. We did we did uh, stuff for quite a few larger companies as well. Um, had like five employees around that, um, but but then eventually sold that again or split it up as well before before the end of the apprenticeship. I mean, that's crazy. If you think about it, you build a business on the side of doing your apprenticeship. And what is really fascinating here for me is it seems that, you know, already at school, but now also with the apprenticeship and then with your first company, you sort of always followed your interest. And I feel that this sort of gave you an unfair advantage because you were really good at what you were doing. And by having the freedom to pursuing that, you were also really good at what you did and had the joy and the fulfillment. And I think one thing that actually came with it, and that is like also, also sort of as I as I grew up, I didn't really, I still have the same thing sort of as we went into like having a child. Sort of let, let's just think about the next step. Mm -hmm. Let's don't plan like for for the big thing right. going forward, and like like what does that mean in two years time? But rather, what does it mean for the next three months? And yeah. it always seemed very natural. It always makes a lot of sense. Oh, okay, yeah, let's start something for the next three months. I don't have too much time. Yeah. That essentially it comes at a at the price of a of a lot of sleep. Right. You don't really think about that if you if you're about to start that but it's really just start something let's take the next step let's figure out what is what's interesting and then let's take it from there so that also sort of protects you from the potential things 
where you think, oh, in the long run, this will be the big challenges, etc. If you think for the three months, you don't even think about these big challenges that might come up. That's that's cl- uh, that's absolutely right. And I think what always was important for me, and also later on, as we had, I don't know, like five, six hundred employees, it was always about presenting a north star. So mm-hmm. where do we head? What's sort of the the bigger target? But what is what's now exactly the path towards it? Yeah. It will see around the way. So it doesn't it really. It really doesn't matter whether we go left or right, as long as the general direction is the right one. Let's absolutely. Go. You then decided to sell that hosting and web application business. Why was that the right decision for you? Because after the apprenticeship, you could have also said, this is what I want to do. I want to have my own company and fully focus on it. Why not? And it was probably the first first time where I then thought a bit, okay, what does that mean now? How would the next two years look like for that? And we obviously could have grown that, like doing like the same business a bit, a bit more, um, getting more employees. So we all would have been totally capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. But it didn't look really thrilling so I, I wasn't i wasn't super thrilled about the idea of of just continuing the same way and i thought before sort of doing really a bigger gig it probably makes more sense to learn a bit from from the real experts how does that work how does how does the real world look like okay. so i i stayed actually then for two more years at the company where i did the apprenticeship mm-hmm. um also got way more responsibility there i was really able and, and i guess also sort of the whole the talent or the idea of how to work with clients is a lot what I developed during that time. And then then after two years, then it was time to move on. But you also just wanted to do bigger things, didn't you? Totally, totally. It was always, I, I, even like doing stuff later on, it was never about doing something small. Um, yeah. and that's probably like the, the, the extreme comparison if you, or uh, the opposite if you talk about like how my parents are doing it. Mm-hmm. So they were like the more sort of initially goldsmiths sort of doing the things on their side as, sort of other, as, as a main occupation, but by definition right. sort of something that, that is smaller. They both don't work in their original jobs anymore. But, uh, but it, it was always for me to create something bigger and to evolve something. Mm-hmm. It always had to change. It, uh, sort of doing the same thing for more than, I don't know, five years is, is something that, that feels impossible to me. Absolutely. And then actually in 2012, you then co-founded Netcentric together with in total three co-founders. Where do you actually meet them? Where do you meet your, your co-founders? So I moved then after, after the company where I did my apprenticeship, um, I moved into Germany, um, spent there then, uh, at a uh, time at two companies and we were in the consulting companies where Gerhard and I, um, who is still working with Netcentric today, uh, we both were working at, uh, at, at the same company mm-hmm. and had multiple teams working with, with essentially what back then was Day Software um, based in Basel. So we worked with them with projects all across Europe and met with obviously with like, Gerhard, uh, myself, um, but also Frank was based in Switzerland and quite a few others um, who were working with us uh, primarily in Munich in Germany, mm-hmm. um, who were really focusing on that topic. And we sort of took the decision that we want to do that on a more European level and less on a, let's say, being restricted by by, uh, by, by, by borders and, and different entities within a consulting company. So we decided, I guess, at the end of 2011 to start our own company on on March 2012, everyone handed in their resignation and we started in June. Time to, to get ro- rolling up the sleeve, right? Totally, totally. So please also explain a bit who your customers are with Netcentric and what problems you actually solve for them. So with Netcentric, you were always, and that, that's really also one of my philosophies, you always be, need to be focused on things. Mm-hmm. If, if you do like everything a bit right and left, it's, it ain't going to work. 
So focus was a very, very big topic from the beginning on. And we always said, we're not going to do like a bit, uh, what was then sort of the first day software and then just got by that time acquired by Adobe. So we don't do like a bit of Adobe and a bit of this and a bit of that. If we do something, we want to be the best at it. And we want to mm -hmm. be, we want to really know how that stuff works. So we focus fully on that. So we started with really sort of that promise, we are the ones, and it was back then called like the Adobe Experience Cloud, which was sort of then a combination of what they acquired from their software, but also Adobe Analytics and, and Target then came into it. So they built a new model of software, which was also very appealing primarily for the large companies which had, which had big, um, big, big digital marketing spend. Mm -hmm. So initially it was, uh, it were, or actually still today, it's many banks in Switzerland, it's automotive companies in Germany, um, but also, also quite a few other companies like luxury goods co company, like one of the largest luxury goods company actually wasn't a customer from, from day one. Um, due to a recommendation, they just uh, bought the license uh, um, uh, like, I don't know, half a year or three months before we started the company. Oh, great. Um, so <laughs> I, I still remember we were like in an apartment. Oh, now we have to do a slide deck. Oh, we have to come with a, uh, <laughs> with a price table sort of <laughs> what do we charge for it? Oh, let's, let's, go, let's go high and we anyway have to negotiate. So it was, yeah. it was a super interesting time, but it really remained like about those type of clients so large multinationals, many countries, many languages, which in sort of by definition are typically like those um, banks, automotive, luxury goods, yeah. um, insurance, as a bit sort of in that direction. And why did they exactly chose to work with you? What did you do differently in the market? I think we were from, from day one on our competition was not other small firms, but it mm -hmm. was rather the big consultancies. So it was like an Accenture, a Deloitte. So, so we were always playing on, on eye level with them. Um, but the difference between them and us was that we really had the experience. We had many, many people working with those products for, for months and years and years yeah. and just have done many mistakes that they haven't done yet. And sort of being able to focus on that, because even if they have done a successful project and they had someone actually really focusing that, the chance mm -hmm. that the next project that person would do is something totally different was very, very big. Right. So, so with us, if someone who worked with, with Netcentric, it was always clear that person did nothing else than Adobe Experience Cloud projects, period. Yep. And, and that really helped us gain traction in the market. And, and many customers, also and customers are talking with each other, knew if, if there's something that is, that is really not the standard, just imp implement a few templates so that actually making something bigger, that Netcentric is a very good per, uh, um, company to talk to, that, that really made it, I guess it was a lot, um, a lot, lots sort of just recommendation, mouth by mouth, and sort of talking to each other. Yeah, absolutely, and basically, you built the reputation. If they want to implement or work with the Adobe Experience Cloud, they better work with Netcentric to implement it. I couldn't uh, spell it nice. That's uh, exactly the way. <laughs> if you if you look at the market that time, you know it sounds like a lot of stuff was shifting, a lot of stuff was happening. So, why was the timing right to actually start Netcentric in 2012? Was it also because of the shift that you said with Adobe that this experience cloud was really, you know, picking up speed? Yeah, I think it were two things. And I guess the first point is exactly what you pointed out. It was sort of, I would say that what is today the experience cloud was emerging. I mean, back then it was sort of three, four products um, that have been acquired now under the same brand. Right. And on PowerPoint that made a super nice software suite, where in reality, that obviously was a bit more difficult. That obviously has changed over time, but it, it, it was as a really compelling also for the, for the customers. And that's actually what they wanted. They didn't want to have one content management 
management solution, one solution for email marketing, one for analytics, but they wanted to have something that actually plays together and that is where they're able to really sort of strive towards that 360 degree view of a client and what are people actually doing. So I think the time was really right from a software perspective. And then the second of all, it is really a sort of what, what we just talked about before, sort of like, how do we actually have the right people? How can we execute on that? Mm -hmm. um, being able to grow and, and, and not just having like two people working with a client, oh, sorry, we can't do faster, but actually has the willingness to expand, the willingness to grow with our clients. I think those were the two main main success factors of, of the buildup of NetCentric. If you look at that setup, at the same time, you were also quite dependent on the success of the Adobe Experience Cloud, right? Um, basically, is that also a risk or a challenge that you face? Because if they wouldn't do well and less and less companies would have used their software, you would basically have had less customers. I mean, that absolutely was a risk, and, and but we took that risk very, very willingly. And we were, we were uh, look, uh, going very eye open into that, into right. that risk. And if that would have, uh, wouldn't have worked out, obviously we wouldn't have worked out as a company as, um, um, that well as we did. But on the other hand, you need to take some risks. You can't, you can't build up something without yeah. risks. And in my view, it is much more important to have a focus and know what you're good at instead of mitigating every potential risk. And it was anyway like that time, like 2011, 2012, where many sort of, uh, content management companies were, were acquired and not to name a company name, but there was a German company which acquired one after the other and we always called them the software grave. <laughs> and it was clear they, they acquired it somehow, I guess they got some revenue out of, of the existing li licenses, yeah. but they didn't really build anything new. Mm -hmm. But we really liked on Adobe, they had a vision where they wanted to go. We obviously also knew the products and we were where they were at the moment, but we really uh, liked the vision and the vision that uh, was really what we, what we shared in common and could sort of, we're talking the same language to our clients with a di different perspective. And that mm -hmm. made a, a very powerful combination between Adobe and us. And at the same time, I also wonder, you know, Adobe was the product base, basically that you helped implement. Was it ever a consideration that you made to also launch your own product? Because at the end, you're basically also charging hours to a certain degree, right? In the consulting business. And that is completely different from having your own subscription-based product out there. And it's always like, for, I guess for all consulting companies, always a very, very tempting thing. Oh, mm -hmm. let's just start the product and then we do have recurring revenues without doing anything and we do it on the side. Right. In my view, it never works out. It's again the focus, it's, right? It's exactly, it is the focus and it's, it's either you're a product company yeah. or you're, you're a services company, but you, ca you really can't be both. If you're both, you're always much, much better at one than the other. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I haven't seen any single um, example in the world so far where I really would say it's sort of on par, the consulting services and the product. So we obviously also had like, like enablers and like connectors that we've built, but, but the more we productize it, the, the smaller the profit was at the end because we, then it was just over-engineered and it didn't really work out. And it was a, so I really believe in that either you're a services company or you're a product company, but you can't be both at the same time. So know where you belong to. Totally. I also want to talk about the growth because you had international clients and very big clients basically early on. So how do you actually acquire these big name clients from all over the world, basically? I guess with, with, first of all, it was the promise that we can grow with them. 
It mm -hmm. was it was the promise. We have good people. It was always the promise that look, those two or three people will be your your main um, uh, go to persons. They it, it, that person will be your architect. That person will be your project manager. That's anyway the main people you're you're uh, interfering with and mm -hmm. you're working with. We we started um, to work with a or we built up a center in Barcelona um, back in 2012, like way before it was was chic and everyone went to Barcelona. So we were one of the I would say one of the first non-Spanish companies that actually were there in the tech district in of, of Barcelona. Where it was right. super easy back then to get good people. It's a different story now. Right. But back then, I mean, we we really could choose. We could get the best people, and that was also for our clients. Barcelona was always oh great, like <laughs> workshops always in Barcelona. Of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, amazing setup. And how do you actually get in touch with these big clients? I mean, did you have any contacts to them? Did you just source them and do outbound campaigns? Or how do you actually win the big companies from international as clients? I think the first was really like people also uh, are moving be be between our, uh, if you work on an automotive company, the chance that, you, that your next employer is an automotive company is relatively big. Like the sure. better example in Switzerland is if you work at a bank, the yeah. chance that your next employer will be a bank as well is relatively big. Exactly. So it was like, that was one thing, thing. but the other thing that was certainly, I guess we managed to build up ourselves a name in that very small ecosystem. And I mean, yeah. even at the end, we were like, 600 employees or so barely anyone knew the name Netcentric because it was very, very specific to that play of the Adobe Experience Cloud. But in that play, pretty much everyone knew us. And there was mm -hmm. once a year always the, uh, the big Adobe event um, based in London where we obviously had all the clients and we, we always threw a good party at the boat and stuff. So, so that was really where we were also able, first of all, to get clients, but also prospects together. And yeah. then they were just sort of, we obviously placed and people on, uh, on dinner, like in, in a strategically good right. way to have like our good, cli <laughs> good clients together with the, with the prospects, which were not clients yet. Uh, so that they for sure also want to be clients later on. So that's smart way. But, but it was, and it's obviously B2B sales. It is, it is, it's a lot about, finding out who's your actual client. And in our case, it was relatively clear. It were those clients who either had bought an Adobe license or an Adobe Experience Cloud license or those which were interested in it. How, how do you actually find that out? Because I guess there's no filter in LinkedIn where you can say, did you actually purchase an Adobe Experience Cloud license? Uh, no, that, that's absolutely true. But but indeed, you see, for example, on LinkedIn, like what type of people um, are they hiring? And, and mm -hmm. it's, it is a bit like by industry by industry. So obviously automotive, it was always very clear. It was always very clear. Hey, there's one automotive brand which doesn't have Adobe product yet. <laughs> and everyone else has. It was just like one of those industries where it was most widespread. Yeah. And even like banks, I mean, there's barely any Swiss bank which which isn't using the product. And it was was a lot about industry by industry as well. Makes sense. And what I really like what you just described is again, this focus, this laser focus, because then that also allowed you to not only build the brand and the reputation, but also to deliver and actually have the compounding interest that comes out of that to a certain degree. So this is really impressive. Another thing I want to focus on is the employee size and the growth there that you mentioned. First, you were the three co-founders, and then you had to grow from, you know, your small starting team to 100 employees. How did you manage that? And what were the biggest challenges along that way? I mean, that's obviously sort of the, 
wouldn't call it a downside, but that's, that's one of the challenges of being a consulting company. You only grow with number of employees. And right. by definition, you can't grow your business if you don't grow your, grow your headcount. Right. Now, hiring is one thing, but it's super or even actually way more key to retain employees. So as a consulting company, to really have a good environment for your employees is, is, is super, super critical. Mm -hmm. Um, as we started the company on day one, we were like 25 employees. Um, so like, like the, the, our three main founders, we were like, like an, ex, sort of an extended board, how we call it, like an additional like seven people and then like 30 in total. But it was very clear that we had to grow pretty quickly. So the first decision was not always then super handsome. Okay, how do we now, how do we first get systems uh, set up? And then second of all, okay, where do we actually uh, hire people? If we, if we need to be I don't know, 80 by the end of the year, how do we mm -hmm. manage that? It also was a decision, okay, let's start up an office in Barcelona, cool city. So we had actually on day one, we had, uh, day one, we had two clients, uh, three offices. <laughs> uh, Zurich, which always was our headquarter, Munich and, and Barcelona. So um, it, it was always in about how do we create sort of the right environment. We had then, um, yeah, we've, we've essentially grown, we've, we've, got, uh, we've got more employees. Barcelona relatively quickly became, became the largest office. Um, and with growing, there's always one, one issue. You always have to sort of reorganize your people in a certain way that everyone still feels he's sort of accountable. He has like someone that is actually taking care for him. Right. Um, and the first I guess, reorganization to a, to a small extent was then relatively fast. Um, that where we added then the teams and sort of structured people. And then obviously with every reorganization, there's always some people which are happy because they end up on top of the new organization <laughs> and yeah. some people which are just totally disappointed because they're not the ones that, that uh, got sort of the, the, the new higher roles, so to say. And we were always like, how can that matter? How can that be actually of any, of any value? Because we are still doing the same day-to-day -day job. It's not really that now just someone, because he's now a team lead, um, is, is doing a totally different role. We're all still working for our clients, period. And that mm -hmm. was everyone in the organization was working for clients, period. Yep. So we were then very actively also looking about how, to, how do we structure our company? How do we build that? Um, how do we build the whole foundation of the company? Um, over the next three, four, five growth levels mm -hmm. without sort of overcoming sort of that, yeah, and working with that reorganization and, and sort of explaining those who didn't get pro got promoted um, versus those who got promoted. What is the difference? Like, sort of, what do we expect from them? Right. So we looked at, at really many, many models or organizational forms that were out there um, and decided then, I think it was back in 2013, so a bit a bit more than a year after we we founded the company, um, we switched our organizational model to to holacracy, um, which is one of those I say dynamic or agile uh, organization models, and uh, yeah, the company is working ever since with that. And why did you specifically choose holacracy? Why was that the right model or organizational setup for you? I think, especially since since that time in 2013, there's there's many similar sort of models and forms coming up, and I'm not even so sure whether it it's that much of a difference, or it really makes that much of a difference whether you choose model A or model B or, or model C. Mm -hmm. I think, in the, especially in the beginning, it's important that you sort of follow one 
let's say, set of rules or so, or a playbook. Yeah. Um, because we never wanted to be a company which sort of, or which the purpose of the company is more sort of the organizational model. Our purpose was always very clear. We wanted to do excellent projects for our clients, period. And it was not about, yeah. about building a holacracy organization. And that, that's, that's a f uh, something that, that I always see is very dangerous for many companies. And they always drift into sort of the purpose is more building their own company instead of actually mm -hmm. their actual purpose, which is what is their value to the outside. So for us, it was really just a tool to use. It was a tool. How could we structure that? And how could we do reorganizations and change things without sort of everyone being always unhappy at, uh, all the time? I like that perspective because if you don't have your real purpose to generate value in the world as a company, there's no point in building a company. That's exactly the point. And it's really, it's, it's like, as I said initially, it is super important um, to create a great <clears throat> environment for your people if you're dependent on people, which we 100% were. So it was, it was key for us that we have something where, where our employees felt super happy, where they felt that is that place where I want to work. And it's, I mean, still there's, even that now, quite a few years after, there's still many people which were 10 years plus in the company. So I think we've, we've, we've managed there to create something with that. And the organizational model is something that comes with that and sort of or supports that. But it's, not, mm -hmm. it's obviously not the only thing. I think that's a fascinating story that you just shared here. And maybe you can also quickly explain how Holacracy worked for you in practice. Like how did you set it up and how did it show and, and work in real life, in business life? So as we started, we also had uh, two trainers from the Netherlands, um, which did a professional sort of working with companies to, to, to start with Holacracy. Yeah. So as a, we really uh, went out and got outside help, also got outside perspectives. And sort of one of the, or probably two of the key things in Holacracy are really sort of on the one side, you, you pretty much uh, separate the tasks on working on the organization, sort mm -hmm. of the whole structure, what is where, sort of who has which uh, responsibilities or accountabilities in the, in the speech of Holacracy versus what is tactical, what needs to be done. And yeah. those are two totally separate discussions. And mm -hmm. that really helps focusing it. Other sort of the tactical meetings, which were sort of the, the weekly um, meeting where we were discussing about a certain topic in a circle, which was always bound around one topic. It was always a relatively rigid structure, but it always helped to finish that in, in maximum one hour. And it was, was never about finding the solutions in the meeting, but a lot about defining the next step. Mm -hmm. What do we need to do? Who's doing what? Uh, rec uh, record a project, figuring out where does it need to be done? Is, is that outcome good for now? Let's move on. Yeah. And the second thing, and that, and that is really, and I, I think that's a bit key for all those sort of agile organizational models, or at least I very much hope so, is sort of the, the, the role definitions. But that, and that is really critical. And, and that is actually a very good exercise for everyone. Um, just figure out or write down on a paper on a piece of paper what are you actually doing? Not I'm responsible for X Y Z or I take yeah. care of this, but what are you actually doing? Because the, the, by the rules and how you define a role in holacracy, you really define the rule by what does that role do? 
um, and sort of really encapsulating that, but then also like being able to do totally different things which have nothing uh, in common. Now, initially, um, as we started the company, I was also very much in how do we actually uh, build our whole office spaces, like uh, down to selection of tables and stuff like that. Now, in my initial role as CTO, that certainly was quite far away. And <laughs> if you would now in a traditional organizational model would come out, okay, Adrian is a CTO and we now somehow um, uh, put in that the technology world also office management. That just doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, but in holacracy, you really build it, build the structure of roles in a way how it makes sense for the roles. But yeah. I, as a person, can have a role um, on the one side of the, of the organization and a totally different side of the organization, which also doesn't need to be on the same level. Sort of, I can of sort of, in a specific office, I'm responsible for X, Y, Z, yep. but at the same time, um, I'm leading technology, I'm leading sales. And, and that also makes it for new joiners way easier to understand how an organization works because you have a very exact map of that, which sort of makes sense. And it's not like, it's not strange structures. It's rather sometimes strange that the person is here and there. But right. that's, that's probably easier to understand. Absolutely. It's more like the natural flow of life to a certain degree. The natural flow of, flow of, of life, but also the natural growth of a company. And right. especially if you take sales, I really couldn't count how often we reorganize sales and marketing and sort of how is that? Is that together or is that separate? And, the endless and discussion, yeah. It, it is an endless discussion <laughs> and I don't have a definite, a definite answer after moving it five times in and out. It also obviously depends a bit on the people, but it's, it's a lot about trying it out. But also we were at the end, uh, we were active in, in Germany, in Switzerland, in, in the UK, in, in, in the Nordics, in the Netherlands. Right. So how do you organize sales? How much is it top down? Is it more, is it like a geographical led? Is it, is it sales led on the top? So there, there's so many different ways. Yeah. And the nice part about, about then those, those types of roles is you can relatively easily restructure them. And if you restructure a part, and that was really initially when we did the first sort of bigger restructuring of those roles. Mm -hmm. We thought, ah, oh, we have to explain everyone now why we're doing what. But right. then we figured out actually people just looked at, is my role affected? Does it have any impact for me? Mm -hmm. No? Okay. Yeah. Don't bother. <laughs> and that, that was really, we had, we had zero discussions about problems and reorganizations anymore after that. It's very interesting because I've, I feel the issue that you faced before Holacracy, right? was that people started to compare each other with the others and then they felt that they deserved something more that they didn't get because yeah. you had the hierarchy in there and with holacracy you don't have that exactly I mean, also holacracy itself is, is not like a tool to lead people so we, we sort of created a role that was called an uh, people success lead so mm -hmm. with, with the idea of that was the per, uh, that person also had a role to take care of let's say five people and to develop right. them. And it was very clearly specified what are the, what are the, the accountabilities of that role. Mm -hmm. And with that, it sort of, it, it wasn't necessarily required anymore for a senior developer to grow as a next step to become a team lead because some senior developers are really good at leading people. Exactly. And some are probably better at coding. But right. in, in, in that way, we managed sort of to, to take a bit the sort of the, the burden off. Oh, you have to go into a team lead role in order to, yeah. to take a next career step. Yeah, uh, I, I find that very fascinating because it's basically human psychology, right? It's not the setup that is necessarily wrong, but it's the perception of it yeah. that makes you feel wrong. And that's very fascinating. Yeah. 
from my perspective, what's also very fascinating is you started with Holacracy with around 130 people, you know, a bit more after one year, uh, you, then you started your company, but then you actually grew with it to 600 plus people. Did anything change along the way in terms of the setup or was the core, the Holacracy at the core of your organization still the same? I think the core is is relatively the same. Obviously, the, the, the more mature an organization gets gets with that, the more you have to take a bit shortcuts right and left, which I think is, is totally fine over time. I think initially it makes sense a bit to follow the rules and really to sort of first master the rules and then break them. Um, <laughs> but as soon as we sort of were there and then also the, obviously the tools were developed further and for example, the governance meetings, those are meetings that you, where you actually work on the organization, so you change roles. Those are very, very stiff meetings. And mm -hmm. that always felt a bit like a waste of time. And over time, they introduced in the, in the what's called Glassfrog, but in the meantime, there, there's multiple uh, sort of online tools sort of to, to help you run an organization based on, on, uh, um, on, on Holacracy. Um, they, they, they came up with a, with a feature called um, on, uh, online governance meetings, which essentially meant you did a proposal, um, you sent that out, and only mm -hmm. if someone objected, it actually was pushed to a meeting. And if not, it was just oh, adapted. Great. So yeah. it was actually even from, or from, from, from a weekly change schedule um, on an organization, it went to a continuous change. So yeah. and, and, and all the time, if you had something that you wanted to change, you did it immediately. And, and that helped a lot as a gaining trust also by the by the company and everyone saw it very openly what was happening. Mm -hmm. So I think in, in the core, it's, it, it hasn't changed that much, but obviously people got more used to it. It was, right. it, it over time, the organization was a bit, a bit clear sort of what was happening there. So there weren't probably the super big reorganizations anymore every, every week. Um, right. But it was really sort of working with it. And then as a, over time, as the new joiners came into it way, way quicker. Mm -hmm. And now for many people, you know, Holacracy is sort of seen as the magic bullet. Whatever problems I have, it will solve it and my organization will strive. Is it a magic bullet? Yes or no? Uh, no, it's totally not a magic bullet, but I think no organizational model is, is a magic bullet. It's it's a lot about about how do you, what to use as a tool. And I mean, I'm, I'm part of the entrepreneurs organization where we are using like within EO, we're using EOS, which at the end is, a, is a, is sort of an organizational model, which is actually has many things that are quite similar. And, and, and I found myself in there yeah. super quickly because there's many tools. They always have all a bit of different name and stuff like that, but from right. a sort of a basic principle and idea perspective, it is, yeah. it, it, it roots a bit in the same ideas. So it is something to give you a, a toolbox without needing it to develop yourself. And that was, again, like back to the decision why we came to it. It was for us super important. We didn't want to develop something new because we didn't want to have as a purpose building a, a form of organization. We wanted to use yeah. something that was there as we were using Jira or Git or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's a tool we use to develop the company, but it's, but the same way you could build, I'm not sure whether it still technically exists, you could build your, your company based on Subversion probably as well, and the company technically could work. Right. But it's, it's, it's about using a tool and using that right. Absolutely. So yeah, not a magic bullet, but an enabler, a support function, so to speak. Yeah, totally. Now, if you look at the business side, right, you grew to 600 plus employees, revenues, clients, everything was growing. And then only five years after you started company in 2017, you actually decided to sell to Cognizant, another consulting company with very international uh, offices and backgrounds. Why did you decide to sell Netcentric? 
Well, actually, an interesting story. So we, I mean, obviously we were growing, we were we were gaining international footprint, but it's obviously also like growing really internationally large is difficult. We were mm -hmm. our main markets were clearly Germany and Switzerland, where we I guess had had a pretty good presence. But we had offices in in the Nordics, in 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 Amsterdam, in London, where it was much much harder to grow. And as a sort of that, and I think it's it's a sort of typical. Whether it's a mistake, I'm not sure, but it's, it's, it's I would say a, a typical thing. Is, oh yeah, I, I've mastered market number one. Um, market number two needs exactly the same thing, so let's just go there. They will buy that anyway, <laughs> which is absolutely not true. No, which is absolutely not true, of course. And then you say, okay, then the next thing is that okay, I have to hire a local salesperson. Oh. Um, but then you really want to make sure that the salesperson does it exactly the way how you do it. <laughs> Um, because that's the way how the company works, which obviously then doesn't work at all either. Yeah. So it, it was a lot about, um, we, we, we've seen challenges for the growth. And the second mm -hmm. of all was they, they came at a point in time where we knew we, we had to change the company. And I still remember then, so we, we got like an LOI from them. So that we, yeah. we had like initial discussions and there was, we were really at a, at a crossroad for the company where it was the question, do we go sort of left and, and, and sell the company or do we mm -hmm. go right? and sort of become bigger, grow organically, probably like either acquire or merge with, with a different company. Mm -hmm. And we've been at a, at a nice hotel up in the mountains with sort of our sort of the extended board, so that there's seven, eight people. And I presented then sort of the, the, the two ways forward. And look, we have an interesting offer. It is just an LOI so far, but it sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. um, we have the other option. and. Anonymously, everyone decided, okay, it's the right time. It is. It sounds good. Everyone had to say something very, very positive about Cognizant. Although back mm -hmm. then, they weren't really present really in our market or right. for us as competitors. But most people worked with them sort of in a, in a competitive situation and for, with one of the other clients. And everyone had to say something positive. So we were, okay, let's go and explore that. I mean, that sounds like an easy decision, but I imagine you never have all the data points, right? You never know what's going to happen either way. How do you make such a decision? Is it just like then at the end also a bit of a gut feeling? It's it's very few hard numbers together with a gut feeling. It was obviously also then what what is it for our people as I said before? Like it's super important for us to create an environment for, for where people really want to work. Are we able to retain that? Mm -hmm. How would that work? How would that look like? Um, also sort of, we were always quite bullish about our offices, which now nowadays uh, with all the remote work is not that as a key anymore, <laughs> but it's still, it is, it, it shows who you are as a company. Like how can we retain all those things? What does that mean? How right. can they help us grow? Can they help us fix our problems? So there's obviously, there, there's almost more questions than answers you have at the time, but sort of, it's again, it's an idea. Let's take a next step. Let's figure out mm -hmm. how that would look like. Otherwise, you know, if, if these answers would not have worked out, then you mentioned the software grave before that would have then been the consulting grave. And I guess there's even more examples of, of, uh, of consulting companies who've been acquired and become software grave or in that yeah. case, a consulting grave, um, which vanished pretty quickly. But it's one thing if a, if a brand is vanishing. The other thing is like how quickly are actually the people vanishing? Is, is the mm -hmm. company really able to take up from that and to grow with that? Also, is the company able to embrace that? Is Are they really able to understand? Okay, look, that smallish company, I mean, we were there like for 500 people or so at the time of acquisition in comparison to Cognizant with like 
300,000 employees worldwide. Yeah. I mean, like, how can you be of any relevance for that? Mm -hmm. And are, are those companies able to really embrace that? And they're buying you for a purpose. They're not yeah. buying you just for the for the headcount, but, but but essentially they, they want to grow with that. And are they actually also really able to grow? Mm -hmm. that, that, is a, that is a massive difference. Yeah. And I think that's like the exactly right perspective that you share here, right? You, you wanted to find out, can this work? You don't know for sure, but then you develop some hard numbers, but also a gut feeling that then leads to a conclusion whether you want to do it or not. Yeah, yeah. Then what happened? You had this LOI, you decided, yes, we do want to sell. How did the M&A process unfold after that? It obviously always takes much longer than what you expect. <laughs> but that, <laughs> yeah. I think that that's in many cases the, I mean, I guess we took the decision I guess it was like in April um, 2017 where, where we took the decision, okay, we actually seriously want to go after that. We, yeah. we were talking there since like November before or so, but like in April we decided, okay, we actually seriously going to consider that. Um, and we signed it at the end of October. And it was obviously, it was sort of my, my main role really shifted a lot from, from sort of, uh, let's say leading the company from from doing lots in sales to okay <laughs> leading an M&A process while yeah. still keeping up like especially towards employees but also towards clients mm -hmm. still keeping up the picture I'm totally there I'm not focusing on anything else exactly uh, it was always sort of obviously we're making sure that we have proper financing for the company and everything yeah. um, but it, it, it was quite tough sort of to work on that again sort of almost as a side job although it was it was like from from a sort of share of mind it was it was obviously the largest part it's like two full-time jobs at the same time right exactly but that again was was what was really helpful um gerhard is my co-founder who's still with centric then he really took up many of those roles and it was always very clear i'll leave right. the MA part and and he sort of takes over many of the the more operational parts in the company yeah. and and he trusted me blindly and I trusted him blindly. And that was really one of the, of the key successes on that. Because yeah. it's, if, if we would have had to debate everything, every decision yeah. um, that, we, that we were taking all the time, it would have been impossible to still focus on the business because we still had to grow it. We still, during the M&A time, we, we won a few major clients, uh, which were then obviously quite important for the earnout as well. So, so it was so clear that we, like we have to be laser sharp and focus on execution, on working with clients, while at the same time conducting that M&A project as, as, as good as possible for our, in our own interest. Absolutely. For how much did you sell the company? <laughs> It's an often asked question, but that's unfortunately confidential. It definitely it was it was a good price. Um, I think as a, based on the company still exists today, it's it it was it was worth it. Um, but we we definitely don't complain. Um, there are some rumors. Um, you don't have to confirm, but there are some rumors that say it's in the three-digit middle million range. I can't comment on any of that. Okay. <laughs> it was obvious, it was obvious, as always, it was a part of a, which was a, a, an upfront consideration yep. as of at close. Um, but then there was also part, an earnout part. Yep. And as I said, we've, we've, we've managed to grow, um, especially the first year of the earnout, we've, we've grown extremely well, which also was, mm. also the, the, actually was the runway from 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 what we've done actually during the M&A phase because we've, we've won quite a few clients just then and they, they, they either they've signed just before or just after, but that really 
allowed us to grow that and then also sort of with the help of Cognizant also then work on an additional development centers. So we've built up a, a team in, in Pune as well, in India. And, and especially then a bit later on, it, it, it also helped a lot in those new markets like the Nordics and the UK. But that, that really took a bit longer than, than just like three months. Uh, let's work with all the key account managers oh, and suddenly right, yeah. we sell a few more projects. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that easy, unfortunately. But still, there was a good boost that came out of the of the acquisition, basically. And it was, it was, I guess, for many clients, it was always, oh, yeah, we typically would work with an Accenture, with a Deloitte, and now should we really work with that small company? Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of having now a, a, a cognizant in the back for, for some of those co- customers, it, it really helped and g- it helped giving us a boost and also being able to provide other services while still sort of with an eccentric brand being laser focused on the Adobe Experience cloud business. Right. I also wonder, you know, of course, there was some money flowing in your personal account as well as uh, the founder of the company. How did that change you as a, as a person from, you know, having to work like lots of hours, etc., managing the M&A process? And suddenly there's a, probably quite a significant amount of money in your personal bank account. I, it's obviously always difficult to say from, from, from your own perspective, sure. but I, I don't think that it changed that much is obviously, as I said, like I read like once a blog post, I think about sort of typical um, uh, startup exit or founder with an exit. The first thing you do is you buy a house. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's that's what I did as well. <laughs> um, it's also, I guess, in, in nowadays a, a good way um, to park some money. Right. Um, apart from that, I don't think that there's that many things that have changed. What's obviously what has changed, and that is that is a massive freedom I enjoy. Everything I do, even more than before, I, I I'll do it because it's it's really fun and it's because I really like doing it, and it it allows to create a few more things which you couldn't do without money. Mm-hmm. But it's all about sort of creating something new, creating something newer, bigger, different, learning something, um, and it's at the end, money is an is an enabler. So it's more about the freedom aspect, but it didn't really change too much of your daily life. I don't think so. And right. if, I guess if you would ask my wife, she would also say it's probably I've, I was still still out uh, quite a few hours. It more changed in afterwards than as I as I as I left an eccentric fully. like with Corona before mm-hmm. I was just traveling a lot. Um, that obviously right. came to a pretty hard stop and changed my life probably more dramatically yeah. than than the exit itself. After you then left Netcentric, you actually found another operational role because you founded winemaker.com, but you recently closed it down. So this venture didn't work out. What were the reasons for that? So the idea of winemaker.com was really to build a marketplace to sell wines directly from, from wineries to end customers. Mm-hmm. And the selling wine is one thing, selling wine to end customers across borders is something that is that is relatively difficult because... Uh, um, wine amongst other tobacco and energy are subject to excise tax, which makes it way more difficult to yeah. transfer that uh, uh, cross border. So we we really built up sort of that whole marketplace. We built up that model how we could, in, a, in a, an economically very interesting way, also sell wines directly to end customers, pick it up from the wineries, deliver it to end customers in reasonable amount, reasonable amount of time. Um, so we managed all that process. We managed sort of the, the, the IT side, I would say. We've, yeah. we've managed very well. We've, we've done probably one typical mistake, but it's also difficult sort of to say now in, 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 in the, uh, looking, for, looking from, from now to the, back, the past, how should we actually have done it differently? Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we, we, we probably overestimated a bit 
like how big is that niche? The wine market in perspective is like in Europe, 150 billion each year. So it's a wow. super, and even Switzerland alone is like 7 billion. So it's a super, super big market. Uh, but it's obviously big chunks are taken up by supermarkets. And then how big is that niche where we want to go in, in reality, despite the fact that it's such a super big market. And at the end, it is, it is a typical B2C marketing problem, so to say. And it was a, mm -hmm. it was, was a, 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 a intention also to go into that. Um, but really finding your market and uh, nurturing that, uh, that, that properly. Um, in comparison with the model, which is a relatively big effort, mm -hmm. so that the, the burn rate was was probably a, a bit too high just to grow it slowly, right. and the growth rate was just not not big enough. So we've we've unfortunately had to take the decision. Okay, it's it's not worth pursuing that. Yeah. It was a super interesting time. We've we've learned a lot. Um, definitely don't want to miss it. it. Was probably an expensive MBA, but <laughs> but probably learned more than with a with a real MBA. Um, but that was, I guess, the main reason why we closed it down. Would you say that in that case, your focus was too narrow? I'm, I'm not so sure. Probably. But on the other side, without having the focus, um, it, it wouldn't have helped end customers to understand yeah. what is the difference. So if you would have been sort of even... Uh, let's say more open and, and uh, in terms of like what do we the, what do we see as our target customers mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't have helped anyone to sort of understand better oh i really want to buy there because yeah. at, at the very end the wine is a product which you which many people like and many people buy mm -hmm. but it's red or white or sparkling and right. either it has a brand or it doesn't have a brand. It has a high price or a low price. And that's about like a, a, the decision points almost. And it's, mm -hmm. it's relatively difficult to really break through that or it just takes a lot of time. Yeah. And yeah, also the same thing here. Focus, it was probably still necessary to have that rigid focus. But at the same time, it also allowed you to test, validate and then also learn, hey, this doesn't work out so you can move on. Yeah. Did you have any criteria in mind where you said, if we don't get to that point, we will have to shut it down? Or how did you make that decision? It wasn't like laser sharp sort of on a KPI, but it was yeah. always clear that we, that we would measure ourselves on the revenue growth. So it wasn't about profitability or whatever. It was really about we want to, we have to, we have to prove that the model works. We, 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 we need to grow the top line. Yeah. Um, and that was just visible that, that like in, as of independently what the measures were, we weren't able to to grow the top line fast enough. Mm -hmm. And that was at the end, as a, at the end, the sole decision point. Yeah, fair point. Now, of course, you all wonder what is next for you. Do you have any new ventures planned or do you focus on investing? What, what will be your focus for the next months and years? Yeah, fortunately, I'm, I'm typically not bored. So we've we started like already back in 2017 as we as as, as we had our exit. We started with Chentian, sort of a, a small investment company with with Gerhard and myself, sort of very investing in year to date. I think around 25 startups, primarily in Switzerland, but also some in Austria, um, uh, Germany, sort of a bit let's say Europe with with a Switzerland focus, primarily right. sort of B two B SaaS space. I guess where we also can add quite a bit of value in terms of also how do you grow companies? Um, where does it make sense to hire people? How do you hire them? Like all, all those things. Mm -hmm. But the second, and that is, was maybe more sort of by interest and sort of by chance, where we really went sort of into the whole drone and robotics space. Oh, nice. Where, where Switzerland is just a 
an extremely good space for that, where we have so many super interesting companies. We started with the first one, okay, led from one to the other. So in the meantime, there's, there's also quite a portfolio of that, and it's, it's a super, super interesting space. Fantastic. And do you have any plans or wishes to st start another company with an operational focus yourself? I definitely will. I'm not sure when, sort of yeah. now. Yeah, just our third daughter got, got born oh, um, a, week, a week ago. Thank you very much. Um, so for the next three months, I guess I'll, I'll hope for a good summer to, to, <laughs> to take it a, a bit more lazy, at least. Although if I look at my calendar, it's still... I'll, I'll manage to keep myself busy, but it definitely will be something operational again. But there's, there's no very concrete plan yet. So we, we're very excited and see where you will show up then after summer. We will, we will see. We will see. And I'm sure I, I'm not looking for something, but I'm sure there is something that will, will walk towards me and will uh, be a match. Absolutely. Ilian, to wrap up to today's episode, we will have some rapid fire questions prepared for you. So I either give you a choice, uh, different options to choose from, or a simple question, and you have to answer in one sentence. Are you ready? Yeah, totally. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Actually, eight hours, despite the fact that uh, our daughter just was born um, less than a week ago. It was actually a relatively relaxed wow, night. Wow, impressive. But I tried to get like seven, eight hours a, a day. Um, that's sort of the time with, with four hours uh, per, per day. Those are definitely over. Great. Serial founder or setting down and focusing on the right company? Serial founder, definitely. I think I, I need sort of a, a bit of change of focus every three to five years, whether it's within the company or from one to the other company, but yeah. it's uh, like doing too long the same thing is not exactly. Always something new, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's your favorite wine? There is really not one. Like, it would be too boring to just have one. But uh, obviously, we had now in the in the last two years uh, a lot of uh, um, ex exposure to Swiss wine, and there's 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 so many other great wines like the, um, can, the, the for example the, uh, the Le Grand uh, from Thomas Merouk from Flash. It's a, it's a fantastic Chardonnay, which if in a blind tasting, no one would ever think it's actually a Swiss Chardonnay. But also Negromante is, is from the Garcia de Cantona in Ticino, which is a super nice red wine. Also, again, it's 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 just 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 right out. But also then I know Austria with with Colvins who do super nice Chardonnay. So it's really a wide selection. So my right. So the, the breadth of my wine cellar certainly ex extended a bit. Too too many good options to choose from. Absolutely, absolutely. Then where do you actually go to recover and recharge? Um. To Amden, sort of in one space, a word. We have we bought a bit more than five years ago a place up in Amden where we before we still lived in the city center of Zurich, and we said, mm -hmm. okay, we, we need sort of either we go go a bit outside of the city or we need something for the weekend. So we bought um, a, a small house up in Amden where it's just always super quiet, and we have the cows and oh, great. <laughs> mountains and nothing else, and that is that is we really enjoy that. Yeah, fantastic. And the last question for you, you've been active in both markets, you know, both countries uh, pretty well, Switzerland or Germany? Switzerland. I guess from a market perspective, it's, it's, it's often easier to work or actually more pleasant. I would say not easier, but more pleasant to work with clients. Mm -hmm. And I guess from a personal perspective, there's more lakes, more mountains. Yeah, I agree. That's a perfect uh, option to choose from. Elian, thank you so much for joining us today. Lots of success and all the best for the future. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you, Silvan. Thanks a lot.
hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.